thank you, Johnny, for your welcome. Uh, it's really good to be with all of you. I've met Olivia here and Rainbow, uh, the lamb or the sheep, who I'm assured won't make a noise during the sermon. But anyway, it's lovely to see all of you. And we're going to come now in the letter to the Hebrews, uh, initially back to chapter 1, and then a short section in chapter 4. Now, my Bible may have a different page number, but it's, mm, let me see, it's uh, 1201 in, in this NIV, but it may not be the same in everyone else's Bible. Our, our theme is the context of this whole epistle is of the wavering faith of these Jewish Christians. And the antidote that uh, the writer prescribes for them is to fix your thoughts on Jesus. And as we were reminded in the prayer, we were thinking last night of Jesus as the pioneer or the trailblazer of our faith. The one who's opened up the way to God, travelled that route himself, but also shows us how to follow him on that route. And now we come to the second picture, which is perhaps the main picture in the letter to the Hebrews, that is of Jesus as our great high priest. So let's read uh, words uh, from chapter 1 to verse uh, 4. This is the word of God. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Those words uh, probably taken from Psalm 110 that we just read. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For reading on the verse 5, for which the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the word, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And then moving uh, to chapter 4, uh, perhaps very familiar words in verses 12 to 16. One of the great words in the letter to the Hebrews is therefore. The, the writer is always giving us a great doctrinal truth and then saying therefore. And so he comes now, he says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, uh, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's take a moment again to pray. Father, we simply ask that once again your Holy Spirit would teach us and we echo the prayer of the psalmist. Lord, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. For your name's sake. Amen. Let me read that one verse again in, in chapter 1, verse 3. After Jesus made purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I'm always struck by the reaction of the disciples to the announcement of Jesus that he was about to depart and leave them in Luke 24, just before his ascension. 
Because on the previous occasions when Jesus spoke of his leaving the disciples, they were filled with grief, we are told. But on this occasion, we're told remarkably that they were they returned to Jerusalem with joy. Now, why was it that they were able to return with joy, knowing that the Lord whom they'd come to love and serve, and upon whom they depended, was about to depart from them? Well, it was because they realised, perhaps for the first time, that his ministry with them was going to continue, but continue in a more accessible and in a deeper and a wider way than they'd ever known before. Uh, notice how the writer here puts it. To which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand? Because now Jesus will continue his ministry, no longer on earth, but from the right hand of the Father in heaven. And of course we're familiar uh, with Psalm 110 that we've just read, and this picture, and it is a picture, of someone sitting at the right hand of the, the majesty. In Old Testament times, uh, if a, a conquering hero returned from a, a military battle, the king would bring him to sit at his right hand in the place of highest honour. And that's the picture that the writer is taking up to reflect upon the fact that our Lord, after he had won uh, the battle up on Calvary over the powers of sin and death and hell, he now returns victorious uh, to the right hand of the Father in heaven, to the place of highest honour. And from there he will exercise his continuing uh, ministry on earth. And of course, he had already promised that he not in, uh, you've been, I know have been looking at John's gospel in, in your Sunday morning, Sabbath mornings, uh, John 14 and right through to John 16, he spoke of the one that he would send uh, to continue his ministry. You shall do greater things than these because I go to the Father. And you'll remember that uh, he had said that that ministry would be in many ways a better and wider and deeper ministry. First of all, because for three years he had come and gone. Now he said, I will abide with you permanently. Uh, till now he had accompanied with them, he said, but now he will dwell in you. And up until now he was limited uh, to living in one province with one group of people and disciples at one little place. But now his presence will be with his people in all places and at all times and in all circumstances. And so uh, the writer of the Hebrews now is speaking about the continuing heavenly ministry of Jesus from the right hand of the Father. Now, what I'd like us to think about over the next few minutes is what is the nature of Christ's heavenly ministry uh, from the right hand of the Father? Uh, I'm not big into titles and getting things to rhyme and rhyming letters, but if you like something simple, we might think of all these uh, different points under the letter R. You'll notice in the first couple of verses we've been reminded of Jesus' revealing ministry uh, in, the, in God's book, uh, through the prophets has now spoken through his son, the one who's the exact representation of, of the Father. So uh, there's his revealing ministry, then there's his reconciling ministry on earth, but now we're coming to his heavenly ministry. Now, uh, what is the first aspect of the heavenly ministry of Jesus? Well, uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us, after Jesus had made purification for our sins, he sat down. We, we might call it his resting ministry. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that he was tired. He had done his work and he had got tired and he needed a rest. That, of course, is not what it means. Because you will know that the Old Testament priests never sat down in the temple. Indeed, there were no seats in the temple. Why was that? Because their work was never done. Priest after priest, sacrifice after sacrifice, year after year, they kept on offering sacrifices for sin, which could never take away sin. So their work was never done. But if this high priest we're told, after Jesus made purification for sins, he sat down. 
And why was that? Well, of course, because the work was complete. The work was done. Uh, uh, once uh, for all sacrifice for sin had been made. And the writer of the Hebrews uh, emphasizes that again and again and again through this letter. One of his favorite words in the language of the New Testament, the Greek language, is the word hapax, which means once for all. And so, for example, in chapter 9, Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to take away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Chapter 9, 28, Christ was sacrificed once for all to take away the sins of the people. Chapter 10, we are made holy through the sacrifice of Jesus once for all. And then it's summed up at the end of chapter 10, there is no longer therefore any sacrifice for sin. Jesus' ministry, his atoning death, was a once for all death because the price was paid in full. No need for any further sacrifice. What the repeated offerings of animals by successive generations of Jewish priests could not achieve, Jesus, our great high priest, achieved when he offered himself once for all. I remember in a rather silly, silly illustration, if I may use it, uh, being reminded of this fact and the wonder of it. Uh, I remember I was going out with my present wife, Sandra. I was courting her, as we say, and there were early days and I wasn't too sure how well it was going to go. And I think it might have been her birthday. I can't remember what the occasion was, but I decided I would take her out for a date to the Scandia Cafe in Belfast. Some of you may know that. Uh, around the centre, around Hard Street or wherever it is in Belfast. And I still remember I was a student for the ministry. I'd just started studying for the ministry and I didn't have too much money in my pocket. I'd given up working and I was trying to work my way through, keep a car on the road, pay the bills for the house I was living in and be a student for the ministry at the same time. And I remember going into the Scandi and looking at the menu and looking at the main courses and seeing the price, totting up my mind what it would cost for a main course and a dessert and a coffee. And then I got a bit worried. It looked like it might be a little bit tight to pay for two of us. And I was a bit worried, would there be VAT added or is there service charge at the end? And the embarrassment of taking a girl out for a meal and not being able to pay for the meal at the end was just too much. And I've actually got a very sweet tooth, uh, as Judith has discovered. I, I love sweet things. But I kind of pretended to Sandra, I don't really want a dessert. Uh, we're just go- I'm just going for a main course and I was hoping she'd say the same, which she did. So I had this main course, which I quite enjoyed, but I couldn't help looking at the menu, Mississippi mud pie, baked Alaska, pavlova. And if you remember how the Scandia, they used to describe the desserts in a way that you could almost taste them. Wickedly delicious, they would talk about it and so on. But all the way through, I could almost taste the desserts that I couldn't afford to buy. And I think we had enough money for a coffee. And I remember going up to pay for the meal at the end. And uh, I went to the chap behind the counter and... He said to me, which table were you at? And I pointed at the table. He said, your meal has been paid for. And I said, no, no, it hasn't. I'm just coming to pay for it now. And he said, no, I think your meal has been paid for. And I was a bit puzzled, to say the least. And he said, give me a minute, I'll get the manager, because it was the manager who dealt with it. So he called out this man in his nice suit, and he came out with a suit and tie, and he said, yeah, your meal has been paid for. And I said, but it can't have been paid for because I haven't paid. He said, well, actually, there was a man sitting over in that table and as he was leaving, he paid for his own money. He said, I want to pay for that couple as well. And I said, well, who was he? And he, he didn't know. And I said, well, how did he pay? Did he pay by check? And it turned out he had paid by check. Now, you, presumably none of you will know what this name is, but I'll let me get it. It just said on check, F. Johnson. I didn't know any F. Johnson. I couldn't think of any F. Johnson, nor could Sandra. Now, 
to cut a long story short, it was later on it dawned upon us he was a friend of a friend of mine and he had known Sander way back and he probably thought there was a poor theological student. He, he looks like he could do with that bit of help and he paid for our meal. But I still remember walking out onto the pavement in Belfast just absolutely amazed and I didn't know whether to be delighted or really upset because if only I'd known I could have had at least three of those desserts. But the point was, the amazing thing was the meal was paid for in full. I had nothing at all to pay. If only I'd known I would have enjoyed that meal so much more. To know that there was nothing to earn. I didn't need to worry whether I'd be able to afford it at the end. It was paid for in full. And in many ways that sense of amazement is how we ought to feel. Is it not about the work of Christ? All of religion in this country so full of religion tells us that we've got to earn it, we've got to make it, we've got to achieve it. If we do such, we might be accepted. The Gospel says it's not anything to do with what we do, but what has been done in Christ. The price has been paid in full. Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary to China, tells how as a young lad he was taken to a holiday, I think it was in Brighton, and he stayed in the B&B, and he, he found a little book. Uh, he was not a, a believer at the time, or not a convinced believer, and it was called The Finished Work of Christ. And this is what he wrote. He said, It dawned on me when I read that little book for the first time, that since the whole work is done and the whole debt is paid, there was nothing left for me to do but fall down on my knees and accept Christ's salvation and praise him forevermore. The work of salvation is complete. Christ is resting from the work of atonement. The debt is paid in full. I hope you have understood that. That's what grace means. It means someone else is paid fully for us. We don't deserve it, we don't earn it, it's paid in full. And I hope you've entered into the joy of knowing that Christ has paid the debt of your sins in full. And by faith receive that gift and rejoice in it. No longer trying to achieve, no longer trying to strive, no longer wondering, have you done enough? Christ is resting from the work of salvation. But let's come to the second R. Hebrews 7 verse 24 and 25. We read about his ministry representing us in heaven. He's resting from the work of salvation and he's representing his people in heaven. It says because he lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore he is able to save completely all who come to God through him. For he ever lives to make intercession for us. Now I remember being puzzled by those words when I first read them because some people have told me that it means that Jesus is praying for us. And sometimes I've heard people saying, well, isn't it great Jesus is praying for us in heaven? Now I don't know. Uh, whether that's true or not, or in what sense Jesus uh, needs to pray for his people. Uh, perhaps in John 17 this issue came up, I'm not sure, Mark. But I don't think that's what's meant here. I think it means that Jesus is representing his people in heaven. His very presence speaks for us. Here's how it's put in 1 John chapter 1, verse 2. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father who speaks in our defence, for he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you like, it's, it's a legal picture. We have a representative in heaven. And when our conscience accuses us, or when other people accuse us, or when the devil accuses us, we have one who speaks for us and who represents us in heaven. There's a hymn puts it this way, Before the throne of God above I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. So for every Christian believer we have an attorney who speaks for us in heaven. And he speaks against that accusing voice of conscience 
and of the evil one. So he's representing his people in heaven. He ever lives to make intercession for us. But the other emphasis here is, if you like, the perpetual nature of his ministry. And I sometimes like to think of it as this. Imagine an engineer from Donegal who goes out to a country in Africa, a developing country, and there he goes to a a poor community and his task is to sink a well in a village. People don't have any access to water and so his task is to sink a well and so he works for whatever number of weeks in that village and he sinks the well and the water begins to flow and then he leaves and goes back, comes back home to Ireland. If you like, the work he has done is a once-for-all work. He has sunk the well but the water keeps flowing, if you like, so that the, the community there and the generations to come keep drinking of the water. So, if you like, the work of Christ on the cross was a once-for-all work, but its benefits flow to his people in every generation. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Uh, there's a lovely hymn that, I don't know if you uh, follow rugby, but you'll hear it sung in a, probably sometimes a quite profane way in a Welsh rugby game. Guide me, O the great Jehovah. But you remember that verse which says, See the streams of living water springing from eternal love. Well supply thy sons and daughters and all fear of want remove. Who can faint when such a river ever flows their thirst to assuage? Grace which, like the Lord the giver, never fails from age to age. If you like, we, we go on drinking from that perpetual well of salvation that ever flows to God's people from the one who represents us in heaven. So Christ... Uh, First of all, he's resting from the work of salvation. And secondly, he is representing his people in heaven. But thirdly, he is reinforcing his people here on earth. We come to chapter 4, verse 15 that we read a moment ago. He says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but was tested in every point like us, but without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace, that with confidence to receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. What one of us does not go to prayer feeling ashamed of ourselves or feeling weak or feeling dull, overcome by our own sense of failure, our temptations. We're not naturally strong. We come uh, broken sometimes before uh, our Heavenly Father in prayer. And what we really need, we need both of these things. We need grace to help and strength in time of need. And so we're, we're invited to come to this throne of grace And we're promised two things when we come to Jesus in prayer to the throne of grace. First of all, we're told he sympathizes with us. He's not there to condemn us and point the finger and push us further down. He says to us, look, I know your struggle. I know what it's like to weep. I know what it's like to be distressed and perplexed. I know what it's like to feel like turning back. I understand exactly what you're going through. We come to a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness. Literally means to feel with us. So the writer says, come with confidence. He's not there to condemn you or push you down. He sympathizes. He understands what you're going through. He's been through it. There's no feeling, no struggle you go through that he hasn't gone through even more so. You're coming to one who sympathizes. But secondly, he strengthens us. We receive grace to help in time of need. He sends his Holy Spirit to, as the old uh, or the authorised version put it, the comforter. And as you know, that doesn't mean to pat us on the head and comfort us in that sense, but come forty in Latin means with strength. He comes to reinforce the weak. He comes to give us an energy that we don't have, to give us an ability that we didn't have in ourselves, to shed abroad his love in our hearts, 
to enable us to do what we could not do by ourselves and to be what we cannot be in ourselves. One of the lovely examples in church history is the story of Luther before the Diet of Worms when he was called to recant his writings. And you may know that on the day he was called before the might of the church and the empire, he, he trembled like a leaf. He said he couldn't speak. He was so nervous. And this one little Augustinian priest against the might of church and empire. And so he asked for a day's grace to consider the matter. And he tells how he spent that night in a room by himself with his Bible and Psalm 46. God is our refuge and our strength. And he tells how the one who had gone before that diet like a lamb, trembling the day before, came out like a lion. He found a strength in that psalm that enabled him to stand before the might of church and empire and say, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. And if you like, those events were the trigger for what we call the Reformation. And so we come to Christ in prayer, weak and defeated. But we rise from our knees, the same people, but strong and refreshed for the battle. So we, we think of our Lord Jesus Christ, our high priest, first of all, resting from the work of salvation, representing us in heaven and reinforcing and strengthening his people here on earth. And fourthly, we learn of his ministry reigning. Chapter 1, verse 13 again, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Here's a military picture. Here's someone going to battle who will make his enemies his footstool. And of course, uh, speaking here of Psalm 110 that we read a moment ago, or we sang from a moment ago, because Melchizedek was not only a priest, but he was a king priest or a priest king. And uh, what we have a picture here of is our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, when he defeated Satan on the cross, he took away his authority over our lives, his authority to, to condemn us and to accuse us, and so Jesus can now say, after his cross and resurrection, now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And so uh, we have a picture here of Christ reigning from his throne in heaven and exercising his kingly rule among the nations and extending that rule as the gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth and the ends of the age. And how does Jesus defeat his enemies? How does he make them as footstool? Well, in two ways, at least. First of all, he defeats his enemies by turning them into his friends. That's what the gospel is meant to do. That's why we go forth with the gospel. Paul says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and given us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we appeal to you, be reconciled to God. Those who are his enemies become his friends through the gospel. And every conversion, as C.S. Lewis has put it, is a blessed defeat when someone surrenders to the gracious rule of Christ in their lives. And so Jesus extends his rule through the preaching of the gospel and he turns his enemies into his friends. We have that great privilege of having the ministry of reconciliation so that in this part of Donegal, through the people you rub shoulders with day by day, the great privilege is to, to appeal to them in the light of what Christ has done, uh, reconciling the world himself to be reconciled to God, to no longer be his enemies, but to become his friends uh, through faith in him. Every conversion is the story of a blessed defeat or surrender when we give in to the gracious claims of Christ as King and Lord of our lives. 
But he also exercises his reign through judgment. Psalm 2 speaks of this, Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you be destroyed in the way. How happy are those who seek refuge in him. And here the psalmist is reminding us that coming a day when you and I will find no refuge from him, there will be no escape from him. The only refuge we can find is in him. And that's why we either meet him as our saviour now or as our judge then. And that's why the, the psalmist says, kiss the son, lest he be angry in the way. There's coming a day when there will be no escape from judgment. That's why we need to find a refuge in him, not from him. But let me just make one final point about Christ's reigning ministry, and that is the fact that the outcome of Christ's mission in the world, and this is something during our most discouraged times we should never forget, the outcome of Christ's mission in the world is not in doubt. He must reign, says the Apostle Paul, until all his enemies are put under his feet. Let me use another silly illustration, but it's one that I still remember. I enjoy rugby. I, I'm an Ulster supporter. I go along with my two sisters, believe it or not, on Friday nights to watch Ulster not doing all that well at the moment, but no matter, that's who I support. But I remember some years ago when I was in Kilkenny, Ulster reached the final of what was then called the European Cup. And the, the game was at Lansdowne Road. And the final wasn't great. Ulster won it, as it turned out. It wasn't a brilliant game. But what I'll never forget was the semi-final. Because they were playing Stade Francais, a French side in Ravenhill and Belfast. And I still remember how Ulster scored a try early in the game. And for the rest of the game, it was, uh, it was nail-biting. These huge French forwards were pounding the Ulster line. And you, you were certain that any moment... They were going to cross the line and Ulster's chances would have, would have gone. And I still remember the heart thumping during that game and willing that final whistle to, to happen and so on. But at the same time, knowing, when I watched the game, knowing for certain that Ulster were going to win. I knew for absolute certainty they were going to win. I had no doubt whatsoever. Not because I'm a prophet. Uh, not because just I'm a bigoted Ulster supporter and, you know, I, I didn't rate the French. But for the very simple reason, I was watching that game on video and I already knew the score I was watching the game at home I hadn't been at the game but I knew the outcome but even when I watched the game I still felt the tension of it but I knew the final result I knew that we had won and that's precisely the picture we have of the mission of the church in this world Christ must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet there's coming a day when at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when you teach your little Sunday school class or when you engage in a children's mission or you preach a sermon or you share the gospel with a friend, never forget you're involved in a mission whose outcome is not uncertain. It is absolutely certain that Christ will reign. There will come a day when that last sheep will be called home and Christ will be all in all. So what is our great high priest doing? He's resting uh, from the work of salvation, he's representing his people in heaven, he's reinforcing us here on earth, and he's reigning among the nations of the world. And of course, the final uh, theme here is he's returning. Chapter 9, verse 28. Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, but he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who wait for him. As Christians, we view history from its end. Not from its beginning, we view everything from the, in the light of the end. 
Christians have a completely different view of history from everybody else. Uh, Hindus, for example, have a cyclical view of history. It goes in cycles, it never makes any progress. It just goes round in cycles, never getting anywhere. Secular people see history as completely disconnected events with no plot or purpose. But the Judeo-Christian view of history is that it's linear, that it's as a God-appointed beginning and a God-appointed end, and we're progressing towards that God-appointed end. Uh, someone has likened it to the, the difference in D-Day and V-Day in, in the Second World War. And on D-Day, the decisive battle was won by the Allies in the Normandy beaches, but the battle was not over. There was another ten months of fighting. Hitler and his troops still continued to fight. But there came a day when they finally surrendered, and the street parties began, and V-Day had come. And of course, D-Day was the death and resurrection of Jesus when the decisive battle over sin and death and hell was won. The battle, the victory is secured. But we find ourselves between D-Day and V-Day when Christ shall return and uh, to, to bring home those who wait for him. Uh, we're caught between D-Day and V-Day. Or perhaps another way of looking at it, if, if I can give you another picture. My wife enjoys... Uh, did enjoy Morse mysteries. I don't know if you know Inspector Morse on television, and I think is it Lewis now or something, and whether Agatha Christie, whatever, doesn't really matter which ones. But you know how it is in a, in a Morse mystery, where the story starts and you're, you're introduced to a group of people over here, and then the scene moves to another group of people here, and you're not quite sure how they're connected. And then there's another little story over here, and you realise these are all what we call the subplots. They're just a subplot here, another one here. But as the story develops, the, the plot line begins to emerge. And you begin to see how all of these different subplots and these groups of people all merge into this one story and it leads us toward the, toward the denouement. So it, the, the important thing is the plot line that runs through the whole thing. Now, think of the whole story of history, of the Egyptians, of the Babylonians, of the great civilization of, of Egypt and Nowadays, we might say the Americas and Europe and China and so on. They're only the subplots. The real plot line of history is the saving work of Christ, God's saving purposes for his people. So why is King Pharaoh mentioned in the Bible? Not because King Pharaoh is important, only because he impinges on the life of a man called Joseph and, and those who follow on Jacob and others. Why is Pontius Pilate mentioned in the Bible, this Roman, and he's not at all important in history, except for one thing, he impinges on the ministry of our Lord in heaven. So the great plot line of history, the, the, the great theme is what God is doing as he advances his saving purposes in the world. And that means every time we break bread, says the Apostle Paul, we break bread until he come. We're living in the light of the end. We're part of this great plot line of God's saving purposes in the world. And incidentally, there's nothing more wonderful than to know that your life is part of that purpose. There's nothing more terrible than to find yourself outside of the saving purposes of God in Christ. And that means as Christians we look at the world around us, we see the news, and of course we, we feel troubled about it, we feel upset about it at times, but at the end of the day we're not in despair, we look at it with a humble confidence, because we know the end from the beginning. We know that Christ will reign and that he will return. But let me finish with this, that doesn't mean we sit on our bottoms and wait for the return of Christ. It doesn't mean we're caught between D-Day and V-Day and we're simply waiting. Because notice how this letter to the Hebrews speaks about another kind of sacrifice and another kind of priest. 
The sacrificing priest for sin is gone. Christ has offered himself once for all. No more priests of that kind. But what he reminds us is that every single one of us is a priest under God. So let us read Hebrews 13 verse 15. Let us then, he says, offer to God a sacrifice of praise to do good, uh, do not forget, and to share. For with such sacrifices God is pleased. So that means that every one of us who is a Christian believer, we're all called to have a priestly ministry in the world. And let me finish by suggesting eight different sacrifices that we're called to offer in the Bible. There might be more, but let me quickly, just one sentence each, and then we're stopped. Eight sacrifices that you and I are called to offer to God. First of all, Psalm 51, the sacrifice of a humble and contrite heart. God will not despise. There's the first thing we bring to him. The sacrifice of a humble heart coming before God. Hebrews 13, verse 15, the sacrifice of praise from lips that confess his name. And so we bring the sacrifice of praise and confession before him. Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, the sacrifice of glad and generous giving to the work of the kingdom, which he says is a fragrant offering rising up to God. So when you and I give generously to the work of the kingdom, it's an offering to God, which is a sweet smell, a sweet sacrifice in heaven. Acts chapter 10, verse 4, prayer which ascends, says Paul, like a sweet incense to heaven. When we come and pray and bring our prayers and intercessions before God, it rises like a sweet sacrifice, a sweet incense to God. Hebrews thirteen fifteen, doing good and sharing with the needy. When you when you care for the poor and letter Kenny and when you help those who are needy, it's a sweet sacrifice being offered unto God. And then uh, Romans fifteen, the sacrifice of mission. When we engage in the task of evangelism and mission, Paul says we have the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel. It's an offering to God. He's pleased with it when we share the gospel with our neighbours and our friends. And then the Old Testament prophet Micah, to pursue justice and love mercy in a godless society, to fight for what is right in society. That again is a pleasing sacrifice to God. And of course, uh, Romans 12 sums the whole thing up. To present our whole selves a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto God. That's the sacrifice, in one sense, that brings all the others together. When we offer ourselves to him, all the others fall into place. But let me just make this final point. We were saying that the Old Testament sacrifices offered by priests of animals are different from these evangelical sacrifices. Except in one sense, in one sense, we should be the same. What kind of sacrifice were they called to offer in the Old Testament? Only the very best. Anything second-hand, anything second-rate was not acceptable. They're called to offer only the very best. And so you and I are called to offer the very best of our minds, of our hearts, of our voices, of our energies, of our gifts, of our talents. Nothing less is worthy of the one who sacrificed himself for us. Isaac Watts put it in these words, where the whole realm of nature mine, that we're an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So the writer says, fix your thoughts upon Jesus, our great high priest, the one who is resting from his work of salvation, the one who's representing his people in heaven, the one who's reinforcing his people here on earth, the one who's reigning and extending his rule among the nations, and the one who's returning to call his people home. May God grant that we will 
offer the very best that we have in return for what he has offered on our behalf. Let's take a moment to pray, and then Johnny, I think we hand back to you, wherever Johnny is. Let's pray. Lord, as we reflect upon the truths of your word, we simply ask that you would help us now to respond as we ought. We pray that for any of us, Lord, who still is unsure that you have completed the work of salvation for us, that there's nothing left for us to do but to gladly receive the gift that you have paid at such great price. Lord, grant us that assurance that for us the debt has been paid in full. There's nothing more to do but accept your gift and say thank you and then live a life of gratitude. Lord, give us each one that assurance and that fresh assurance of the finished work of Christ. And then, Lord, would you grant to us a humble confidence in a chaotic world that you are reigning, that you are ruling, and that you will bring a day when all your enemies will be put under your feet and you will reign and you will be all in all. Lord, give us that confidence in the task of mission. And then, Lord, grant us to leave this place to act with diligence as priests unto God, offering the very best of our lives and our lips and our prayers and our giving to one who gave everything for us. Lord, help us so to do, for your great name's sake. Amen.